So good morning, church. Trust you are doing well. Name is Branziski, lead pastor here at Austin Oaks. We want to let you know, um, if you're a guest or visitor with us, a little bit about who we are. We're a church that strives to be simply about Jesus. We believe that he's the big deal. When you encounter him, it changes everything. So that's why we want to help people meet, know, and follow Jesus. That's a little bit about us. Um, in fact, we're in a series, as you're going to hear, that's going to be describing a little bit more about our missional mandate, our call, our charge as a church. Um, but before that, ATX folks, say hey. Okay, on the count of three, okay, on the count of three, everybody, what was your top highlight? One, not like, you got it, I know you all got one, it's, and everybody say it was Lucas, okay, I'm just kidding, we know that's not true, I'm just kidding, that, that was a joke, anywho, love you buddy, for those of you who don't know, Lucas is our youth pastor, okay, count of three, one, two, three. All right. See? The next generation's not lost. We're good. Um, seriously, I want to let you know, guys, guys and gals, we've been praying for you, that the Lord grabs your heart, that there's some of you who have given your life to Jesus, but not only that, that you feel very encouraged and challenged to take your next step in following Jesus. Um, and I'm really actually excited that you're in this room um, this, this morning to hear about what's what our missional mandate is because you are going to be playing a substantial role as to what that looks like in your generation and in generations to come. So um, let me get into this real quick. Our, our series that we're calling it No Accident, the heartbeat behind this is a challenge to live intentionally for Jesus because the reality is following Jesus doesn't happen accidentally. Like you don't just wake up one morning and go, hey, I'm a mature believer all of a sudden. Like, I can't believe that just happened. You don't wake up accidentally and become generous. It takes intentionality, right? Sharing your faith with someone, it takes intentionality. Discipleship takes intentionality. And that's what we're driving at. And the whole heartbeat of the series, if you recall, was um, off of an illustration that I gave last week with Vince Lombardi. In 1961, he got in a locker room with his football team in the, in the, in the post, or um, preseason, what do they call it, training camp? I don't know, I already forgot. Um, he sat down with them on the heels of losing the championship game. So this group of 39 football players, they're excellent football players. They're the top of the top, right? They're substantially, they're all-stars, they're pro bowlers. He got in this locker room with them because they still failed. And he sat down and said, gentlemen, this is a football. And he took all of the complexities of the game and he broke it down to its very simple, basic premise. He took 39 professional football players and explained to them that a football is made out of leather. They made the game so sophisticated, so complicated, that he had to go back and teach them the very basics of the game. And folks, that's why we're doing what we're doing, because a lot of times in a church world, we can make it way more complicated than what it is. We can get ourselves obsessed with programs and systems and all sorts of different metrics, but the reality is we need to come back to the core, to the fundamentals of what a church is, and just go, church, this is a football. And so that's why we're going through our missional mandate as a church. And so this is it as a reminder. We are a church that's about saturating Austin, Texas with the gospel. And we talked about this last week. Our heartbeat is we do that by developing disciples and developing authentic leaders, equipping them and challenging them to live intentionally for Jesus. We believe these four things are the basic elements of what a church ought to be about. 
And so we're coming back together to simply go, what are the main things? Last week was witnessing, and this week what I want to talk to us about is discipleship. What is it and what is it not, okay? At the core of what we are as human beings, okay, if we think about this, we are creatures of imitation. You are going to become like who or what you follow, right? So I remember um, when my wife and I were going through premarital counseling with our former senior pastor up north in Minnesota, he said something to me that at, on the forefront, like I just didn't want to believe and I kind of like actually didn't really agree with. He's like, listen, when you have kids, you got to understand that they're going to be just like you. And I was like, listen here, buddy. I was just like, I'm not anything like my dad, but the reality is like you, you pick up things because you're creatures of imitation. And he's like, no, no, they're going to imitate you. And I, I went, well, that's probably a good thing because I'm pretty awesome. So we're good, right? It's a, that was a joke, right? So one day, I'm a sports junkie. So if you come into our house, you'll find football, baseball, soccer balls just laying around. And if I grab hold of one, I'll literally just like start to grab and I'll fiddle with it, all that kind of stuff. So there was one day... Um, I found the football sitting on the couch in the living room. And I was like, ah, I just grabbed it and I'm, you know, doing this thing and all that kind of stuff. And then I saw a chair all the way across the house, okay? It had to go through the living room, through the dining room, and into a door and land on the couch or on that chair. I was like, I got this. So I'm in the house. I pretend like I was a quarterback. I literally got into stands. I did a three-step drop and I threw it. It was an awesome throw, except that it hit the chandelier, it was getting there, right? And so that wasn't even the worst part of it. Like, I thought nobody was watching me, but out of the corner of my eye, my wife is looking at me just going like this. And I was like, it's not broke. But she wasn't shaking her head in disappointment that I threw it. What she was shaking her head is, is what was happening to my son that was right behind me, who I didn't know was behind me. He grabbed the ball and thought, I'm going to do the same thing. And he took the ball and he threw it, hit the chandelier and broke it. <laughs> and I went... It's his fault, right? I was just like, it wasn't me. But it's like, that's the reality. We imitate. That's who we are. And Jesus understood that. And so when we look at following Jesus, it's discipleship where we become like who or what we're following. If you're not intentionally following Jesus, listen, if you're not intentionally following Jesus, you're intentionally following something. And you're going to become whatever that something is. Okay? And so it's important for us to understand what discipleship is and what it's not. And so here it is. It's super profound. Discipleship is two words. Follow me. And there is a lot that is in those two words. Follow me. It implies leaving behind something to move in a trajectory towards something else else. Discipleship was a big deal in Jewish culture. They understood it. It kind of falls on deaf ears for us a little bit. It's, it's one of those words that has lost its meaning because we equate discipleship with so many things. But to them, to be a disciple of a rabbi was something that you would want to aspire to. In fact, all of the kids in Jewish communities, they would spend a lot of time studying the Torah, memorizing the Torah, and only the cream of the crop would follow a rabbi, or the rabbi would intentionally invite them to follow them. And they had this phrase as disciples back then that they wanted to be covered in the dust of their rabbi. 
So in other words, like they wanted to adhere or follow so closely to the rabbi that anytime he was moving or walking, the dust would literally get on their clothes, and that was an honorable thing. They wanted to imitate their teacher, right? And so Jesus took that concept, and he said, listen, follow me. It's about discipleship. And so here's what I want to do before I get into the text. We've, we've lost the heart of what this means. Basically, because of two things, there's other variables that have caused this, but two that I want to bring up real quick. And when I say these things, I want you to hear me clearly. I'm not saying they're bad, okay? They're part of discipleship, but they are not it 100%. A lot of times we equate discipleship to a one-time decision, to a momentary thing. I said yes to Jesus, therefore I'm a disciple. It starts there, but it doesn't end there. The goal, the goal and call of the church is to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, which is where helping people say yes to Jesus, to be converted to Jesus, to give over their life to Jesus, and move from death to life, absolutely important. And we should be all about that. But it can't stop there. We can't just go, awesome, people are saying yes to Jesus. I hope the rest turns out for them. Like, like, it's more than that. It's, it's, it's a life of following Jesus. It's a life of daily choosing to leave behind whatever it is and take your next step of obedience to Jesus. Now, the second thing that has caused a, a watering down idea of discipleship is that especially at church in the West, we equated discipleship of a book study over a cup of coffee or tea. If I am across a table with someone and we're going through a book study together, having coffee together, I am being discipled. Like, yes, it's part of it. You want to love the Lord with your mind. You want to renew your mind. All those things, you want to sharpen it. But that's not it. It's part of it, but it's not it. Because discipleship is action. It's movement. It's moving from one spot to the next spot. And the life of a disciple is a daily choice to leave behind self to continue to follow after Jesus. So we got to understand that. When we do studies with other people, we're seeing their lives or we're studying certain things, but the challenge should be there is like, okay, how are we going to follow Jesus now versus, hey, next week when we get together, please make sure you fill in all of the blanks and you read the chapter. Like, that, that's, that's not it. We've lowered the bar. So what I want to share with you are just some of the teachings. It's in Luke chapter 9, so if you have a Bible, please, I encourage you to do it. If you got a phone, um, you can use your phone if only you promise to go on a Bible app, not play like, you know, Clash Royale or something. Like just, you got the Bible. So Luke chapter 9, and I want to show you, because a lot of times, like if you study like Jesus' teachings on discipleship, it oftentimes feels like he gives these ridiculous standards that are extremely difficult to understand or even embrace. So let's look at this. Luke chapter 9. Luke 9 and I'm actually going to start reading around verse 18, but I want to give you kind of a little bit of a um, backfill as to what was happening. In chapter 9, at the very beginning, he, Jesus gives authority and power to his 12 disciples. He tells them to go out into villages, cast out demons, heal the sick, proclaim the good news of Jesus, right? And they're doing it. They're seeing amazing things happen. You know, people are hearing about Jesus. Leaders are being perplexed. And thus, you know, no big deal. Jesus just feeds um, 15,000 people miraculously off of a little, little boy's uh, lunch, right? And next thing you know, there's a crowd following Jesus. Of course there would be. 
Like if you heard about some guy in Austin who all of a sudden like fed 20,000 people with just some boy's lunch that he was taking to school, like I'm pretty sure that would catch your attention and you would want to find out a little bit more about this guy. Throngs of people are coming to Jesus. There's people that are caught up in the excitement that's happening around Jesus. Jesus is doing good things. He's casting out demons, stories about him. He's teaching with authorities. He's challenging the status quo. There are crowds there. And then in verse 18, Jesus is at Caesarea Philippi, an extremely pluralistic area of different beliefs, different idols, different gods. People are hustling and bustling, going and doing their own thing, doing what they see fit. And Jesus, in that moment, standing at this place where the worship of Pan, the God would be there, there's this cave, and it was nicknamed the Gates of Hell, gives this little teaching, asking the disciples, who do people say that I am? Like the people at Caesarea Philippi, and I always like to equate this, it's like, think of a busy place in some city, like, let's just imagine, you know, you're, you're downtown on a Saturday night at 6th Street, and you just go, who do these people say that I am? How would you answer that? Right, we could probably give, they would say this, a good teacher, He's made believe, he's a bigot, he's prejudiced, he's great if Christians would only be like him. You know, like whatever it is, we would give a a myriad of answers. But then Jesus made it very personal and asked them, okay, fine, who do you say that I am in the context of all of this? And Peter gives an answer. He goes, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus at that moment in this scene moved on to start teaching them, like, listen, okay, we're heading to Jerusalem. And I'm going to be handed over to the scribes and the Pharisees. And, and they're going to you know, beat me, abuse me, and they're going to kill me. But don't worry, in three days, I'm going to make it the greatest comeback ever. I'm going to conquer death. I'm going to rise again. Like he's like, don't tell anybody this. And in the midst of that teaching, on the heels of this confession, if, if you're going to say that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, what Jesus does next is this beautiful teaching on discipleship. Verse 23. And he said to all, like, like, check that out. He goes to everyone around. He's like, hey, if any of you want to come after me, if any of you want to follow me, just pray a prayer. Well, good. I'll see you later. Like, what he says is, is actually kind of a shock. If any of you would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If you want to come after me, if you want to say you're a Christian, if you want to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself. You have to reject this old life. You have to choose to move on from that life. you got to take up your cross daily, not just a one-time thing. But daily, folks, is it not true that it takes every day to choose to deny yourself? Daily, pick up your cross and follow me. Moving from here to here. I mean, this statement, like we, we lose kind of the weight of this because we hear the word cross and we're like, yeah, I mean, that's where Jesus died. And, and, we, and it loses its power and its potency because we use it as jewelry, we use it as monuments and all these types of things. And yes, we understand that there's power in the cross, and absolutely. But when they heard the word cross, this was something that was part of their everyday lives. They saw people hanging on crosses every day. It was a sign of shame, rejection, 
torture, murder, another reminder that you are held accountable to the state and power of Rome. Complete rejection. And here's Jesus, he's saying to him, he's like, listen, I know you're caught up in the movement. I know you're caught up in the awe and the wonder of everything that's going on. But listen, if you want to come after me, here's the prereq. Deny yourself. Leave this. You got to pick up your cross and you got to follow me. Because here's what he goes on to say. He's like, listen, whoever would save his life will lose it. If you think that everything you want in your life is right here, if you think by saving your life and attaining everything that you've desired and hope, the comfort, the ease, if everything is here and you choose to not leave it, listen, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life, if you choose to move on from that and to deny yourself, you will actually save your life. You will find your life. You will come to understand that Jesus, that I am the greatest thing ever, but you will never know the value of Jesus unless you move from here. This is discipleship. This is Christianity. This is what it means to follow Jesus. It doesn't just simply mean I go to church, I follow Jesus. It means daily I'm choosing to take my next step of obedience, whatever it is. It could be as simple as this, like just going back to last week to make the connection. I feel uncomfortable sharing my faith with my colleague, with my neighbor, with my classmate, with my friend, even though I know God's prompted me, but I'm not going to because I'm choosing that my comfort is more important than that. Discipleship would say, following Jesus would say, I'm going to choose to leave behind my own discomfort to tell so-and-so about Jesus. You can use that at any point, any aspect in your life. This is what it means to follow Jesus. To carry your cross, to say you're a Christian, you're declaring to the world that your whole life is placed underneath the authority of Jesus. You're going to be covered in the dust of Jesus. You're going to try to be so close to him, constantly taking your next step of obedience. Discipleship is demanding. And it's fueled and empowered by God's grace. But folks, can, can, we, can we be honest for a moment? Yeah, let's be honest for a moment. Because otherwise, we're just wasting our time. We sort of like to take God's grace without taking on the role of being a disciple. I want God's love. I want everything that God has for me but I don't want to pay the price. I don't want to take that step. Like, I, I, I want God's grace, but I, I don't want to like, necessarily like, do that. I don't want to face the rejection. I don't want to face the scorn. I don't want to face the discomfort. I don't want to face the life of dis-ease. I don't, I, I don't want to give all those things up. I just want God's grace. Just, God, you love me, you love me, you love me. I'm going to sing and just soak it all in. God, you love me, you love me, you love me but I don't want to pay the price. You really got to wrestle with that. Because the beauty and the power of God's grace is the fact that God's grace, folks, God's grace demands your all. God's grace demands your all because God's grace is costly. It costs Jesus his life to extend to you the gift of grace, but it's costly in the fact that it costs you your life to receive that grace. 
Grace demands your all, but it's never going to force it on you. That's the risk that Jesus took. Like, you can abuse his grace. You can cheapen his grace, to use the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You can water down his grace. God's grace demands all, but he's not going to force it. But when you understand the love of God, how could you not strive to give your all? It's something we've said hundreds of times. The problem isn't that we don't love God enough. The problem is is we don't understand how much God loves us. When we understand how much he loves us, and he's telling us, like, listen, leave this. You're going to get more. You're going to understand more. You're going to have the life that you really want. We oftentimes go, you're not worth it. I don't believe you. I don't really trust you. But when you understand his love, this move is so much more palatable. In fact, that move is actually kind of exciting. It demands your all, but it's not going to force your all. When you experience God's grace, it always moves us towards obedience. It doesn't move us to entitlement where God owes me. I can make demands upon God. I can negotiate with God. Absolutely not. The cost of following Jesus is high. If you're going to come after me, deny yourself. Leave this behind. Carry your cross daily. Pick up that cross, the sign, the symbol of rejection and shame, of giving yourself up, placing yourself under the authority of another. Follow me. In Luke 14, Jesus, in a section that our translators called the cost of discipleship, he says some rather profound things that on the surface sounds extremely harsh. Luke 14, 25. Now great crowds accompanied him and turned and said to him, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother or his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even in his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus, that's harsh. You ever read that and just went, whoa, that's not the Jesus I know. What is, what is he saying? Like, hate my wife? Hate my mother? My, my father? My, my children? Like, hate them? That's not what he's, he's implying. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be, be my disciple. He's saying this again, right? But here, here's the thing. It's like, you need to count the cost. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all will see it and begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. What an idiot. Like, who, who does that? You, you need to count the cost. Like, Jesus is saying, it's like, if you decide to follow me, it's going to demand your whole life. Not just a moment, your whole life. Again, what king would go out to war will not sit first down and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes with 20,000? And if not, will the other who's a great way off, will he send a delegation to ask for terms? 33, so therefore any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. When he's talking about family, he's not talking about like you just cut them off and dishonor them and 
you know, hate them. He's basically saying it's like they can't have greater influence in your life over me. And if they do, you have to renounce that to follow me. You still love them. You still honor them, but they don't dictate the course of your life. You need to count the cost. So here's the question that I want you to wrestle with. What is holding you back and taking that next step of obedience and following Jesus? Like right now. Because every day is following. Every day is a decision to follow him. Whatever it is today, what, what is this thing? What, what are you not willing to leave behind? Comfort? Security? I, I, you know, I, I don't know what it is for you. What is it that you're having a hard time going, ah, Jesus isn't worth it. In Luke 9, there's three individuals that I believe you can find your heart resonating with one of these guys in the call to follow Jesus. Luke 9, 57. Luke 9, 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus. I'm in. And then Jesus gives an extremely cryptic response that feels like a nursery rhyme to me. Or like a Dr. Seuss type of thing, right? Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What are you talking about? Like, here's a guy who we know, because in Matthew's account says that this guy was a scribe. He comes to Jesus. He says, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And on the surface, like the, even the, the tense of this Greek is like, this guy's coming with excitement. He's, he's passionate. He's like, I'm in. And you're getting the sense that this guy is caught up in everything, right? So he's a scribe. He has influence, he has prestige, he has respect. He's an expert of the law, so he interprets the teachings of a rabbi. So he's been a disciple. He's, he's got it made. Comfy life. Scribes and Pharisees aren't taking real kind to Jesus, but this guy sees an opportunity. Here's a rabbi that's getting a massive following. He's just feeding people, like, randomly. He's casting out demons and all this kind of stuff. Of course I'm going to attach myself to him. Jesus, can I follow you? Like on the surface, this looks like a great prospect, right? Like you would go, okay, he's, he's excited. His heart is stirred. He, he's moved. He's a scribe. Jesus, he's a scribe. Like he, he can get into circles that you can't get into. Like he, he's a really, he, he's a high prospect. You've got to take him. But Jesus being the expert cuts right to it and gets right to his heart. And just goes, listen, listen. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air, they have nests. They have their necessities met. But the Son of Man, which is a messianic title that this guy would know, I'm the Messiah, I have nowhere to lay my head. Jesus is getting right to this dude's heart. He's like, listen, you can't follow me and try to get something out of it for yourself. Like, you, you can't follow me for your own satisfaction. Like, you think that because of the trajectory that I'm heading, like, I got all of these people, and you think that, like, somehow I'm going to kick Rome out or whatever it is, that somehow it's going to pad your influence, that it's going to be a life of comfort and ease and luxury. You think you're going to have it made by following me? Listen, you're not going to love my kingdom. In fact, those who follow me, you're no longer part of this world. You're a foreigner here. 
You're a citizen of heaven. This is not your home. This is a strange land to you. So don't get caught up in all of these comforts and these things. Don't do that. But not only that, he's exhorting him to start considering, think about it. When I was in Nazareth, Mr. Scribe, my hometown, they tried to throw me off of a cliff. I wasn't welcome there. Capernaum, my base of ministry, they kicked me out. I wasn't welcome there. When I went to Gardera and I casted out the demoniac that people were terrified of, that was harassing that whole village, like they told me to leave. They didn't want me. When, don't you remember Samaria? We just passed through Samaria. James, John, remember what happened in Samaria when you told me to cast on fire to, kick, to blow them up because they kicked us out? They didn't want me. Guys, we're heading to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me. They're going to put me on the cross. They're going to mock you. They're going to reject you. Are you sure you want to follow me? You see, this guy was caught up in the excitement of it all. And if I were to summarize it, here's what this guy really wanted. He just wanted to add Jesus to his life without the cost of following Jesus. I want to put Jesus up my resume. But I don't want to pay the price of following him. I want to be part with him, but I, I don't want to pay the cost. Second guy comes up to Jesus. Jesus now invites him and goes, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. That sounds reasonable. <laughs> right? But then Jesus gives what seems, again, kind of another cryptic response, but really it's a rebuke. He says to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. What a jerk. Like, like if we don't understand what's really happening here, it, it like looks like Jesus is just being flat out mean. Like, you're telling me that I can't go home and, and bury my own father who's dead? Of course Jesus wouldn't do that. Jesus would be like, absolutely. So what's going on? Below the surface, there's something else that's happening, something a little more sinister in this guy's motives. You see, this phrase, you know, let, let me go and bury my father, is actually a very um, a common Middle Eastern phrase that is still used to this day. And the same meaning is still applies to this day that this guy meant in this text. Um, Jesus, my dad's not dead. He's not, because if he was dead, Jewish custom would bury him the moment he died, because they don't embalm them, right? And so they would bury him, and then there would be a 30-day mourning process. So if his dad really died, he wouldn't even be there. So his dad isn't dead. His dad might die in a couple of weeks, might be a couple of years. We don't know. But what he's really saying to Jesus, saying, listen, I have lived my life long enough that I'm not going to miss out on my inheritance, so I will follow you once my dad dies and I receive my share. Then I will follow you because I heard you tell the scribe that a Hilton isn't part of the plan. But you, you talk about a rough life. I, I, I need to make sure that I have a backup plan, a contingency. I'm expecting an inheritance. I want that wealth. And once I have it, then I'll follow you. Right? You might be camping out in the desert. I'll be at the Holiday Inn, but I will follow you. Like, like he's, he's saying something. He's just like, my love, I'm more concerned about this because I will follow you, but I'm not sure if it's all going to pan out. Because Jesus, if it doesn't pan out, at least then I got my money and I can do something with my life. 
fair? Jesus rebukes that statement. He rebukes it. He says, let the dead bury the dead. Let the dead bury their own dead. In other words, he's saying, like, let the spiritually dead, those who have no concern in the kingdom of God, those who aren't alive, those who don't think like us, who won't, you know, see the same desires as us, the temporal things, those who really want the riches of this world, let them deal with those things because they're all temporary, they're all temporal, they're all part of death. Let the dead bury their own dead. But for you, you follow me because we're part of the kingdom. You're a citizen of heaven. These riches, these desires, this life of ease and comfort and luxury, the part that you're saying, I will follow you once I get this settled. I'll follow you once I figure this out. I'll follow you once this relationship is good. I'll follow you and whatever. He's like, no, no, no. Let the things of the past stay in the past. Things of this world have to stay in this world. You cannot love God and. That's the issue. He has a divided heart. He wants Jesus and he wants this. And Jesus is like, no. Reminds me of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is like, hey, have you done this and this and this? He's like, yep, check, 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 check. I'm good. Then Jesus goes, ah, what's in your heart there, buddy? Sell everything that you have. Give to the poor. Follow me. And this guy's like, this is really what he's saying. You're not worth it. He walked away sad because he was hoping he could have both. But when push came to shove, he wasn't willing to give this up for Jesus. Let the dead bury their own dead. Third guy comes up to Jesus I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say goodbye to those at home. Yeah. Say bye to your mom and dad, your brother or sister. Absolutely. Kiss your little sister, baby, goodbye. Seems reasonable again. But Jesus then says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Is Jesus anti-family? No. He would be a walking contradiction if he were because he gave us the commandment to honor your father and your mother. Right? Like, no, he's not anti-family. Again, there's something else be going behind the scenes. He knows that if this guy goes home, more than likely his family who has greater influence and sway over this young man's life or this old person's life, he's not coming back. They're going to be like, no, we don't want you to follow him. Or he's going to go back and he's going to reconsider everything that he might lose. He's like, oh, I don't know if I want to go back. And that's where Jesus is like, no, no, no. This decision is kind of urgent. You don't go back. They can't shape you. And if they're going to influence you, listen, to be fit for the kingdom of God, I have to have top voice in your life. This, this image, right, is really ridiculous. He's like, you, you can't plow. Like, you, you can't plow and keep straight lines and look back. Like, you're going to be zigzagging. Like, you just can't do it. You, you can't, like, say, I follow Jesus. It's Sunday. I'm a Sunday Christian. I'm good. On Monday, I'm going to be around a group of different people, and I might comp compromise my values. I might talk a little bit differently. I might joke a little bit differently. I might drink a little bit more. I might look a little the things I probably shouldn't look at. But when, when I'm over here, I'll, I'll, I'll be good. I'll follow you. And she's like, no, no, listen. It's no. 
when other people have greater influence and voices in your life than Jesus. He's like saying, listen, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. He's not saying you have to be perfect because let's just be honest, every single one of us in this room has looked back. Yes? We've all done that at some point where we were moving forward and we went, is this worth it? Do I really have to pay this price? Do I really have to do this? Here's what's consistent in all three, and here's what's consistent in every single one of us that causes us to not want to take our next step of obedience and following Jesus. We're just not convinced that Jesus is of greater value than what we are afraid to leave behind. We're just not convinced he's worth it. Here's what I want you to know. You will never experience the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus if you stay here. You will never know the treasure or the value of the pearl that's worth everything if you stay here. In fact, to be a Christian is not to simply identify with a belief system. To be a Christian is to be a disciple, as one who follows, who's obedient to a call. Jesus is worth it. He's worth everything. You have to come to a place and trust him that when he says, if you will not leave this and whatever this is for you, you will lose your life. Now, if you're saved, he's not, you're not saying you're going to lose your salvation. You will lose out on the fullness and the blessings and the things that come as following Jesus. But as a church, for those of us who say, yes, I'm a believer, we got to understand that first, we're disciples. We follow him. We need to be taking our next step of obedience always. So what must you leave behind today in order to take your next step in following Jesus? Now, I want to encourage you as we end this time together, as we sing these next three, four songs, that this is, this is not just singing time. Right? This isn't just time to, to now go, okay, the preaching's over, let me just get up and walk out, lights are going to be dark, no one's going to know I'm leaving. This is actually a great opportunity to sit, sing, reflect, process, pray, let God speak into your heart. Because I, I believe that God speaks, right? Like God leads us, that if you were to ask this question, God, what is it? And to be honest, most of us already know what it is. Like, just start to go, Lord, give me the courage and the faith to take that step and to resolve choosing to take that step today in this time would be a great use of this time. So, Father, I I thank you that you are a God of grace and truth. God, that you love us so much that you're not okay with just leaving us where we're at. That is not just about making a decision and leaving it there. Because you know that we become like who or what we, we follow. And Lord, you want us, like this whole process of sanctification is becoming more and more like you. 
but it's not just for ourselves. It's also because people need to see you in us. And so, Lord, I do ask that wherever we're at, whatever kind of has their claws in us, whatever area in our lives that we are having a hard time denying in order to follow you, Lord, I pray by your spirit in this time that you would make it clear and that we would hear your gentle voice of grace calling us to lay it down and calling us to stand up and to move towards you. So, Lord, here we are. We say, speak. Lord, minister to our hearts. You've given us the spirit for things like this. So we praise you, Lord, ahead of time. Thank you for what you're about to do. In Christ's name.